Welcome back to the table, Conversations on Youth Justice. I am your host, Hussein Hadri, and I want to thank you all for joining us for this episode. Hope you enjoyed last month's episode where we talked to MCYJ's policy director, Jennifer Peacock. I really enjoyed that conversation with her, and I hope that you did as well, and I hope that you benefited from that. In today's episode, we are talking about diversion in the juvenile justice system. And we're going to be talking to Josh Rovner. He's the director of youth justice at the Sentencing Project. And he has a lot of insight in the juvenile justice system nationwide. And he got into some of the details, some of the rationale for programs like this. After that interview, we'll get into some of the reforms that MCYJ is advocating to the diversion system in Michigan specifically. If you have any questions about anything that we talk about, feel free to reach out to us. I will reference anything that we discuss in the show notes. So if you want to see some articles about the diversion system, the studies that Josh has worked on, you can check those out below. Without further ado, enjoy today's show. start by defining our topic. I want to talk about what diversion is and how it fits into the structure of the juvenile justice system. Now, diversion refers to the practice of diverting youth from formal court proceedings, uh, sending them instead to community-based programs. These can and do take many forms across the state. Could be mentorship, programs, counseling, community service. It could really be anything that's designed to redirect the, the youth while holding them accountable for their actions. And that that's a very delicate balance that needs to be struck. And there's professionals that are highly trained at identifying the youth that would be a good fit for this program and then offering those services. Now, one of the big challenges is that for most Michigan youth, diversion starts too late in the process. For the vast majority of youth, diversion is handled by the court in Michigan. That's too late in the process. It places a burden on the court, and it also subjects those kids to formal proceedings. We talk about this in the interview, Josh and I. It's one of the most challenging things for an adult to go through. It's also really, really challenging for a child to be in a courtroom, to have to deal with attorneys and judges and you know, that whole process, it's challenging and it's traumatic. But more importantly, the later in the process that a youth is diverted, the worse their outcomes are going to be. And what I'm talking about is what is, I think, a missed assumption when we talk about juvenile justice, that there are causes to the delinquent behavior of kids. The Kids aren't just misbehaved. They're not just delinquents, right? They there is an underlying cause that we'll get into in the in my conversation with Josh. It could be a violent past, maybe traumatic experiences with the family, a run-in with law enforcement that didn't go well. Really any number of experiences could be the cause of a youth's misbehavior. And the longer we wait to address that, the worse it's going to get. And so these diversion programs need to happen earlier on as well as more often. After my conversation with Josh, I'll take a few minutes to discuss 
MCYJ's reforms to the diversion system in Michigan. Welcome back. Josh Ravner is the Director of Youth Justice at The Sentencing Project, which is a nationwide organization working to limit the criminalization and incarceration of youth and adults. Josh, you have a wealth of knowledge on the juvenile justice system, and you've written about juvenile life without parole, youth incarceration. We're so lucky to have you on the show. Can you start by telling us how you got here? Talk about your education and your past. Well, I've been with the Sentencing Project for about nine years now and serving as Director of Youth Justice for a little less than a year. Um, Before I did this work, I was always involved in in child and adolescent well-being, much more in the public health sector. So I worked as a lobbyist for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. I um, advocated on behalf of uh, comprehensive health care in schools. And any number of good causes like that one, I did all of that after going to graduate school for public policy, just because I really wanted to have a better sense of solutions that can work for kids' lives. You know, I I really like this cause. I think that youth justice is overlooked as an issue. The people that we're advocating for don't have a great voice in state legislatures. But it's mostly for me been about um, speaking up for kids and listening to kids and what it is they need in their lives. Yeah, that's a big part of our mission, too, is centering the real experiences of the of youth that are justice involved. But what comes with that is centering empathy and compassion for them. Right. These are real kids that have gone through tough times and we have to center that. We have to keep that in the back of our minds while we're talking about while we're talking about them. They're not just numbers. I think that that's sometimes missing in the in the conversation about uh, about juvenile justice. Can you talk about that a little bit? The role of empathy. Yeah, I think you make a good point. Though I do think that when you can find people in the right place, that it's not extinct in their lives. It is something that they understand both because they themselves were teenagers or they might have children themselves. And so to talk about what would you want for your own children tends to be a pretty compelling thing to say. I think also people look back on who they were as a teenager and realize a couple of things. One, that they're not that person anymore, that that is a stage of their lives that they themselves went through. And second, that um, they learned from those experiences and grew from them. I think both of those things have been very, very helpful. Um, You definitely can get laughs out of state legislators when you say, you know, and of course, you know, being an adolescent is not a permanent condition because they, you know, you look at the age of many state legislators. They're, They're like me. They're in their mid to late 40s or older They've had teenagers, and and teenagers are difficult. They're very rewarding, but it's a difficult stage to go through. And I think that many people will respect that and recognize the things that work 
in dealing with young kids or work with adults aren't going to work with teenagers. So I don't think that the empathy is entirely missing. I think it can be lacking and you just need to get people in a, in a space where they think in, in a better way. Not saying that it's easy. Fair enough. Well, unfortunately, one of the areas where that's a problem is diversion. Uh, can you talk about the value of diversion? Just give us a broad overview of the topic. Well, let's start from the fact that involvement in juvenile courts is pretty toxic for kids. You know, right. the, the deeper the kids go into the system, the worse the outcomes are. And so diversion is another vision of what ought to happen, that instead of having the courts involved either in incarceration or other forms of supervision and compliance, that you can have community-based programs to support kids where they are and have better outcomes for them. That's what diversion is all about. Right. And, and I want to get into what you think the role of diversionary programs should be. I, what I often struggle to articulate is whether there should be a presumption of diversion for nonviolent offenses, or if we should go further and say we should, there should be a presumption of diversion for everyone. And then in cases where that presumption is defeated um, by some other finding clinical or otherwise, uh, then it shouldn't be like, is, is that the, is that what you envision for uh, as diversion's role in the juvenile justice system? Yeah, I, I would say that the goal would certainly be to divert as many kids for as long as possible in as many places for as many offenses as we can do it. You find yourself butting up against political realities or budget realities or places that the programs don't exist. So the question then becomes how to expand what we already have where we have it. You know, I think one of the things that I find interesting on this issue is that a lot of cases are already informally informally processed from the juvenile courts. It's 45% of the cases are effectively diverted. And if we were talking about building a system where we're going from 0% to 5% or 5% to 10%, that's a very different challenge in growing the use of diversion when it's already being used so widely. You know, I think that we can get to a place, certainly, you know, a nice even 50% is not a huge change from 45%. What is the difference there? You know, how do you get to two thirds of cases? I think that, that the growth of diversion is definitely possible, mostly because we're already building from a pretty big platform. There are a lot of cases already being diverted. There's many parts to the problem to expanding it from getting from 45% to two thirds or something like that, that the programs don't exist, that there may be political opposition. Uh, we also see astonishing racial and ethnic disparities that we see everywhere that you look in the juvenile justice system. And so while diversion is much more common for white kids than for black kids or Latino and native and Asian kids, we know that it's already being used. We just need to see it being used more and more equitably. And that's how we get there. I want to pick up on that last point about the uh, racial disparity that you mentioned. Now, there's a report they all published at the Sentencing Project last year. It's titled Diversion, a Hidden Key to Combating Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Juvenile Justice. And one of the things that you mentioned 
is that nationwide in 2019, 52% of delinquency cases involving white youth were diverted. But, and that was a significantly higher share of cases than those involving black youth, which is only 40%, or uh, other youth, 44 to 48%. Why is that disparity there? Talk about why it's a problem and why it's there. Well, let me start with why it's a problem. It's a problem because diversion is better for kids than formal court involvement. And so kids are going to be more likely to recidivate who are uh, formally processed than informally processed. So you are treating Black kids more harshly than their white peers, and then they are more likely to reoffend and go deeper into the system. So it's worse for them and worse for everyone when we have that. So why is it that that happens? Certainly you can find systematic biases of, um, there's no shortage of research about this, of court personnel seeing body language or um, other attributes and defining them more negatively for youth of color than for white youth. Um, and just general, general harsh treatment for youth of color. Um, those are things that there is training against um, systemic bias like that and, and individual biases that you hope that that can be defeated. But you're also up against, you know, 400 years of racism in this country. Like you don't snap your fingers and solve that. There are programmatic barriers that are not overtly racist that are going to have racist impacts in practice. And so among them are things that may require parental participation. And if you have single parent families, then that's more demanding than it is for um, for uh, families with two parents uh, or other burdensome participation requirements that are a lot easier for families with sort of white collar jobs than blue collar jobs or service jobs. Um, those barriers to participation are real. And I think that court personnel needs to really take a good hard look at why those are there. We have judges in Kentucky who did exactly that and really tore down those barriers and, and made a huge dent in the racial and ethnic disparities, realizing that the participation of the families was just so onerous and so difficult, or that it had to be a literal family member as opposed to another caring adult. There's ways around those problems that governments aren't always good at. You know, like bureaucracies have their boxes to check. I think it's so important to be flexible on those things. Also, you know, are there good efforts to inform families and youth that the alternatives are out there? You know, if you're sending something in the mail, which some jurisdictions do to say, here's an alternative, I mean, how often do people open up their mail? You know, you don't reach people that way. My kids don't open up emails. Like, you need to reach people where they are. There's these rules uh, for participation or practices that can be overcome. But what you need is court personnel to realize, like, where is the dropout point? You know, we made this program available to all of the kids. Why is it that three times as many white kids as black kids participate? You ought to take a close look at that. And so talk to the families. How did you find out about this? Why are you here? Uh, I think that's something that that can also be overcome. Well, you mentioned court personnel. The 
diversion isn't limited to uh to when kids arrive at the court right it's also there's also pre-arrest uh diversion yes. can you talk about how that's different and how you know potentially we could be doing things different on the law enforcement level yes you know i think that there's sort of two categories of diversion that you can think about of pre-arrest and and post-arrest diversion and i suppose i've been speaking a lot more about the post-arrest pre-arrest can really involve not thinking of youth activities as being criminal in the first place. Um, you know, sticking school resource officers into schools turns mundane adolescent misbehavior or even behavior into criminal acts. And so to make sure that, that, that the misbehavior isn't a matter for law enforcement to deal with, but like if it's taking place in a school, like we have school discipline procedures. When, when I grew up and when a lot of people grew up, you got after school detention for getting into trouble. But it's not very hard for police officers to see these misbehaviors as being criminal acts. Um, you know, getting into a food fight in the cafeteria, shoving someone in the hallway, um, various things that you could easily call disorderly conduct. There's this, there's this uh, adage, you know, when you're holding a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. I think that's among the biggest problems of having school resource officers really don't provide resources. I mean, it's just police and schools. That's one way of looking at it. Or other things that are like kids who are in a place that they shouldn't be you can drive them home without arresting them for a curfew violation or for loitering or things like that. Like, just get them out of there. So I think we also need to think about diversion as being the practices of people in law enforcement who could arrest but don't need to. Every misbehavior doesn't need to be seen as a crime. Yeah, I uh, confess to being very familiar with the school disciplinary uh, system when I was when I was a kid. But um, can you talk about uh, the issue of status offenses? One of the things we're doing in Michigan is trying to just keep kids that are, you know, that committed status offenses completely out of court. And there's a lot of reasons for that that you're well aware of. Uh, can you talk about your uh, perspective on that and also what you've seen nationwide from other states, practices that other people have adopted, or other states have adopted that work really well in that regard? I don't know how well I can speak about what other states are doing on this, but I can speak to the the mindset that we need to get away from. It's thinking of these things that that are red flags of misbehavior as being things that the courts can deal with. I think that people hear the word truancy and they think about Ferris Bueller's day off if they're a certain age of just kids sort of hanging out and not wanting to take their French test. But overwhelmingly, for the kids who are missing significant amounts of school, there's a reason behind that, and often a rather serious reason. There could be childcare responsibilities, either taking care of their own children or their siblings or, or other family members, and so they can't go to school for that reason or that they don't feel safe walking to school or being safe or don't feel safe when they're in school. So the fact that the kid is missing a significant amount of school, we should all be concerned about that. Like, you know, you're not going to have much achievement in this country without a high school diploma at minimum. But we can't think about the 
the truancy as being a crime in and of itself or a status offense in the, the legal sense of it, you know, we need to look at like, what are the underlying behaviors? You know, what kind of school personnel or other mental health supports are there to deal with those problems? Because those kids who are worried about their safety going to or being in school often have a rather legitimate fear there. Kids who have childcare responsibilities, punishing them or their parents for the fact they didn't show up aren't going to remedy the childcare responsibilities, which never should have thrown on a 15-year-old kid in the first place, but they are. So what are you doing to address those problems? We also see uh, running away as being a very common status offense. That's how it's categorized. And overwhelmingly, I think that we're seeing that the kids who, are, who we call runaways much more push out of their house than running away from the house, You know, whether it's because of uh, not sharing the values of their parents, um, sexual minorities, trans kids, um, just otherwise not feeling welcome or safe in their own home. And to think of that as being more push out than runaway, I think is very important. You know, the kids may very well feel safer sleeping on the beach than sleeping in their parents' home. What are you doing to support those issues? Because you're not going to punish your way out of that. And then there's this general term that you hear of incorrigibility or ingovernability. I don't know if that's one of the ones in Michigan, but we saw that in South Carolina, where I was doing some work down there. And apparently that the um, you know, a parent will call the police because the kid in one way or another is difficult or out of control. And the police say, we can't do anything unless you sign this paper. And this paper says, I deem my child incorrigible in one form or another. And now that kid is not only in the system, but according to the police, that was the only way to connect them with the, um, mental health supports that the juvenile system may be able to offer other social services. I, I really feel that we need to open the front door to those programs to anyone who wants to be a part of them without requiring a law enforcement referral. Um, you know, in a number of states, you see underage tobacco or alcohol use as being a status offense. I mean, what is more typical adolescent behavior than smoking cigarettes, even though you're not supposed to be? I mentioned earlier that I used to work for the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. There's no way you're going to criminalize someone out of either their addiction or their experimentation with a cigarette. Like, we can't think of these problems as being law enforcement problems. I think the public health approach is going to be much more successful and more compassionate. Um, recently. Uh, I met a mom in uh, in one of the communities that we work in who's telling me that she's an attorney. Her husband is an attorney and her son, he's in high school, brought a a prop knife. He's, you know, he's in the drama troupe um, and he brought a prop knife through a metal detector because they were going to do a show and he was carrying his props. And one of those things was a knife and he was arrested and, you know complete total misunderstanding by the officer by everyone that was there um just they thought that he was and they there are certain procedures to to deal with that and she was telling me that her being an attorney working in uh, in the law her husband being an attorney working being an attorney working in the law for decades uh, between the two of them they found it to be the most challenging 
and stressful moment in their lives to have to talk to their kid um, who, you know, while he was being fingerprinted and all of these other things. I, I think the point that you made before about getting into court or just being court involved, being traumatic, I think that's a great point. And I think that's the part that people miss. Oh, they just let them go through this. If they're innocent, they're innocent and it's going to be okay. What I mean, the fact is that being in a room that's a little bit cold with a judge sitting behind, you know, a big thing and a police officers there, sometimes there are handcuffs involved that in and of itself can be traumatic and it can lead to negative outcomes, even if the kid did nothing wrong. And even if the kid had no negative tendencies before, can you talk about some of the there's common sense solutions, right, to the to these problems? Can you talk about some of the solutions that are less common sense, some of the things that folks might think are a little bit counterintuitive. Well, I mean, let's start with the adults behaving like adults when children are behaving like children. You know, teenagers are going to push our buttons and test limits, and we all know that that's the case. They are also going to make mistakes. So a vision of what is actually going to work is for the adults to use their discretion to make better choices along the way, that that metal detector that caught a prop knife that a kid was bringing to school was probably in the drama club. That should have been resolved within about 10 minutes when the kid says, first, this is a prop knife and shows the guy that it's a prop knife. And then he says, okay, I'm going to go call the drama teacher and see that it's okay for you to bring this. Because you know you're not supposed to be bringing weapons to school. And the kid maybe apologizes, maybe doesn't. Maybe he's a bigger jerk about it than he needs to be. The adults need to behave like adults at a time like that and use their own common sense. So that is our biggest way out of this. The way deeper into this is any sort of zero tolerance policies that don't recognize that there are exceptions that are sensible exceptions. You know, a school can have a zero tolerance policy for drugs, which means that a girl having premenstrual cramps isn't allowed to bring Midol or isn't allowed to give Midol to a friend because now, by the way, she's a drug dealer for dealing with that. And this is all, all the kinds of things that, like common sense is your way out of this. It also frustrates me that the next step along the process isn't, isn't fixing the earlier mistakes. Everyone has a supervisor, and we also have checks and balances throughout our system. And so when the case gets to court intake of this child brought a prop knife to school, there needs to be someone saying, no, no, you're going home, and I'm going to talk to this school resource officer, telling him, I got stuff to do. We have serious cases here. I have a kid who has been stealing cars. I have another one who, uh, you know, stole a car and smashed it up. I have an armed robbery to deal with. Don't bring me this case. Don't do it again. That frustrates me a lot that we don't see that. You know, there are lots of videos around the internet of police overreacting to kids misbehaving. And I have a little bit of sympathy for some of those police officers because people make snap judgments that are often mistakes and they may or may not regret those things. But it's in the heat of the moment. 
um, you know, the kids spit in your face and it's hard to keep your calm, even though our police should be trained to do so. And like I said, adults need to behave like adults. When that case gets to a prosecutor, a prosecutor needs to say, no, I am not going to prosecute this kid for assault on a police officer because he spit in your face. We're going to get him in a room and maybe he's going to apologize and maybe he's not, but I'm not going to pursue the charges here. I, I think the use of common sense is lacking in many of the most horrific cases. And I don't quite know the way out of that, but that's the thing that I would hope for. Giving adults the responsibility to act like adults, even in an emotionally charged situation, even in stressful situation. I think you're right about that. Now, would I be able to keep my cool if someone spit in my face? No, but I also don't carry a gun or handcuffs. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to, as we wrap up here, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything related to diversion or your work in juvenile justice that you wish I would have asked you about. First, I think this has been a great conversation. And so I think I've mostly been able to talk about the things that I, I'd hope to. I mean, one one piece of this that we didn't get to is the fact that the rest of the industrialized world doesn't behave this way. You know, 80% of cases uh, diverted in many other places. And then for the kids who are still in the system, given much more lenient and common sense responses to their misbehaviors, you know, diversion for us is a vision about shrinking the footprint of the justice system so that the resources of the state are sort of focused on the most difficult cases. That's part of the argument of why you want to divert more cases to these community providers. They're going to work better, but we also know that it's going to be very hard, politically speaking, to think that you can deal with armed robberies or carjacking through diversion or um, or lighter touches. It's just too difficult. But what that means then, if you divert more of, first, all of the low-level cases, all of the first-time offenses, most of the mid-level cases of kids who are low risk, you now are left with a justice system that can focus its resources on the most challenging cases uh, and try to figure out um, counseling or other programming that really gets to anger management issues or the drug addictions that isn't going to work in a time of tight budgets and staff shortages in these facilities. Like we cannot keep doing what we're doing. And I say that not just as an advocate who hates these youth prisons, but for the people who would defend the existence of the youth prisons, even they have to acknowledge that we can't keep them staffed. It's a lousy job. People don't want to work in them. And we can't keep doing this. Like everyone keeps trying, well, what if we raised their pay? What if we gave them more overtime? And meanwhile, the turnover in many of these facilities, you'll see 75, 80% turnover because no one wants to work in them. And so that's all the more reason why we need to divert more kids away from it because the government cannot sustain the carceral response. It simply is not um, sustainable. So we talk a lot about what's best for kids and what's best for communities. But I think when you look at the alternative, the alternative not only fails in its outcome, but it fails in its implementation. Like no one wants to work in these buildings anymore 
And that is something that requires a larger response than just raising pay another five or 10%, because that's not working. Josh Ravner is the director of youth justice at the Sentencing Project. Josh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome back. I want to thank Josh just one more time for taking the uh, time out of his day to talk to us about the work that he's doing and about the diversion system generally. Josh mentioned how other countries in the industrialized world have far different diversionary outcomes from the United States, like in Germany, where 76% of youth are diverted from formal processing in the court system. That's three out of every four youth are diverted from formal processing. In New Zealand, that number is 83. The United States pales in comparison, where only 46% of our youth are diverted before court. So for years, MCYJ and our partners have been working hard to expand diversion in the state of Michigan, and we are getting close to a number of policy changes that will tangibly change the experience of justice-involved youth in our state. Now, Michigan sets general standards and practices for diversion through what's called the Juvenile Diversion Act, which has guidelines that must be met when a child is being diverted. MCYJ is working to expand the Juvenile Diversion Act uh, and its scope in several ways with a lot of partners, especially in the legislature, who have been very supportive of diversionary practices. The first big change that MCYJ is advocating for is the requirement of, a, of the use of a nationally validated risk screening and assessment tool. Now, we talked about what these are in episode three, so go check that out. We talked to Tom Laddig about what these tools are, how they're used. This change would require that a such a validated risk screening tool be used when diversion decisions are being made. Basically, it would require folks to consider the uh, risk level of a youth. And the goal here is to shift resources to where they're needed most, right? With low risk youth, there is a variety of tools that we can use. And formal processing isn't necessary to remedy a lot of the a lot of the situations that those youth are in. We want to shift resources from those low risk youth to high risk and moderate risk youth. And as much as these as much as this change is meant to help kids, and all of these changes are, we have to deal with the harsh reality of tight budgets. And diversionary practices, diversionary programs, are one, significantly cheaper to administer, but two, for especially for those youth that are involved, they're far more effective. But I want to emphasize here that these tools aren't meant to replace the discretion of professionals that have been doing this work for a long time and they've been working in their communities for a long time. Instead, these tools are meant to give those professionals more information, to support them by giving them more perspective and giving them deeper layers of information about these youth. And the second big change that MCYJ is advocating is to make more offenses eligible for pre-court diversion. Now, MCYJ believes that the overwhelming majority of offenses should be subject to pre-court diversion for the simple reason that diversion is just more effective. It works. And what this boils down to is an unspoken assumption we have about the juvenile justice system. Look, 
the idea that we should intervene when kids are acting up, acting delinquent or antisocial, that idea is not new. But it, but the underlying assumption there is that getting involved will help. And I'll link a study in the, in the show notes that explains that that assumption isn't always true. For the vast majority of youth that exhibit such antisocial behavior, delinquent behavior, they act up in class or whatever it is, for the vast majority of those youth, they will grow out of that behavior. And so we should start with that as the baseline, that the vast majority of youth will not recidivate. And so when the justice system does get involved, when it does seek out these youth and uh, try to help them, the goal should be to target that marginal group of youth that is likely to recidivate and to decrease their rate of recidivism. Now, with that as the assumption, MCYJ is advocating that the overwhelming majority of offenses should be subject to pre-court diversion. Most youth should never make it into a courtroom or into formal court involvement. Now, that leaves that other marginal group. And what's not covered by MCYJ's proposed reforms is what's called a specified juvenile violation. That refers to MCL 712A2, which specifies specific violations. And that list includes arson, assault, robbery, other violent crimes. Those would require significantly more involvement in the juvenile justice system. And the juvenile justice system has other tools to help support those kids. Now, these changes if they're successful, will go a long way in supporting youth in Michigan, increasing the number of offenses for which youth are eligible for diversion while ensuring that professionals are able to properly assess the risk level for each child that comes into the system. That's a winning formula, I think. That's a formula for supporting and doing justice by our youth. I want to close the show today by mentioning maybe one thing that's a little hopeful about this. Over the last few years, Michigan has taken significant steps toward improving improving the juvenile justice system. We've signed clean slate bills. We have uh, raised the age of minimum involvement in the juvenile justice system. And this legislature has taken a lot of interest in juvenile justice reform. So reach out to your legislators. Reach out to the folks that represent you in Lansing and tell them that you care. Thank you so much for your support. And thanks for listening to the show. This show is written and produced by me, Hussein Hadri, and is the copyrighted work of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We will talk to you next month.